Hi, I'm Jonathan Pennington, and this is the Human Flourishing Podcast. This podcast is a repository of a wide variety of sermons, lectures, interviews, and other resources that I've recorded over the years. Today's episode is a sermon I preached at Sojourn East in Louisville, Kentucky. So finally, before we welcome Pastor Jonathan to the stage, would you join me in standing for the reading of God's Word? Today's scripture comes from Ecclesiastes 5, verses 10 through 20. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This, too, is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether they eat little or much. But as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. I have seen a a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to to the harm of its owners, or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when they have children, there is nothing left for them to inherit. Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb. And as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry with their hands. This, too, is a grievous evil. As everyone comes, so they depart. And what do they gain since they toil for the wind? All their days they eat in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. This is what I I have observed to be good, that it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life that God has given them, for this is their lot. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. Now, as some of you know, I am a huge Taylor Swift fan. Uh, She is a great songwriter, very intelligent, clever artist. If you are not a fan, I'd be happy to pray with you after the service. Recently, I watched a documentary about her on Netflix called Miss Americana, and I actually came away more impressed with her than ever. Not only because it shows sort of in action what a creative lyricist she is, but especially because of how the documentary reveals something I didn't expect. I knew a little bit, but not to the degree that it showed, and that is the real pain and struggles in her life. As of right now, Taylor Swift's net worth is about $400 million. She is the highest paid and most successful female vocalist. She doesn't flaunt her wealth like a lot of celebrities. She actually lives a pretty private life and dresses pretty simply. But in the documentary, you can't help but notice that obviously she's very wealthy. She's regularly traveling around in her private jet and has people, of course, surrounding her and helping her at every moment. But... The documentary shows that despite the stadiums full of fans and all this fame and wealth, her life is not one of the kind of ease and freedom and constant joy and pleasure we might assume. In fact, for many years, the documentary reveals, by her own words, she really struggled. Even while she was rising to fame with with her body image, she often suffered from a lot of depression because of thinking certain pictures made her look fat. 
As a 19-year-old, she was very famously criticized by Kanye and other famous people, and that caused her a lot of pain as a young woman. She had her heart broken several times in relationships. She was inappropriately touched by a man and had to go through a long and humiliating trial to see justice. And her mother, her closest companion, has been battling cancer for years. In other words, despite being incredibly wealthy, incredibly famous, her life is actually very far from perfect and peaceful. Indeed, many of her problems have come from her fame and wealth. Now, all of that is very different than the picture I was given when I was growing up about what wealth and fame were doing growing up in the 70s and the 80s. Was, this was the era, some of you may remember this show from the 80s called Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. You may remember that? And it featured Robin Leach, who would travel around and show off the extravagant homes and properties and lifestyles of the mega-rich athletes and, and socialites. And it, it always looked so amazing and so perfect. There was no hint of like personal struggles and anxieties and pains. And, and the host, with a glass of champagne, would end each episode by saying, champagne wishes and caviar dreams. <laughs> and that was the hope that was laid out for us in the 70s and 80s and 90s, I think, that if you can make enough money, you will find happiness. Here's a question for you. How much more money than what you have right now would make you happy? How much more money do you think you need and the things that could buy that would make you happy? If you can think of a dollar figure, how much would you need to say that you were happy? Now, I can come up with a figure that allow, would allow me to do certain things that promise happiness, though the more I start to think about it, that number just keeps increasing. <laughs> well, I'd also need this, and then I'd also need this, and I want to provide for my kids in this way, and that amount just keeps getting larger and larger, and I bet, I bet you can too. But the question is, would this money and would these things really buy you a life free from anxiety and stress and pain and even the nagging sense of futility of life? I think if you're old enough to be honest with yourself, you'll know that the answer to that question is sadly no. Despite our natural drive for more wealth and our hopes that that would give us freedom and meaning and purpose and happiness and peace, the universal testimony of humans is that it doesn't really satisfy. More is never enough. Right, the, most, the wealthiest American, one of the wealthiest, wealthiest people of modern history, John Rockefeller, who lived in the end of the 19th and beginning of the 20th century, he was famously asked one time, how much more money do you need? I mean, he was the richest man by multitudes. And his answer, how much more money do you need? Just a bit more. Was his answer. And the thing is, even if you and I got to this magical place where we thought we had enough money, it turns out that our problems and our bigger needs wouldn't go away, like the need for meaningful relationships, for health, and for purpose and meaning. And today, as we continue our preaching through Ecclesiastes, what, what I've come to think of as a book of raw wisdom. The teacher turns now to this universal topic of wealth and money and all that it promises. And, and it's all, the whole book is centered around this Hebrew word hebel, which means vapor or futility or unsustainability or elusiveness. 
And the teacher of Ecclesiastes is really like a Kyosho martial arts black belt. He knows our pressure points, and he likes to push on our pressure points to make us pay attention. And in today's text, he applies this pressure to, I think, what is one of our weakest spots, our longing for money and wealth. But you realize he's not applying this pressure to us to damage us or beat, beat us up, but it's like acupuncture or a needed IV. He is inserting a needle into our souls to bring us healing. And on the issue of money, he's going to show us, by inserting this needle into our souls, that, the, that wealth and money and the drive for it is futile. And that he's going to show us there's a solution to our problem. So three ways he's going to show us that our desire for wealth is futile. And in the New Testament, we'll come back to this briefly at the end, we're going to see that Jesus and the apostles, they talk about the eternal dangers of wealth, and there are some, but here in Ecclesiastes, which is very typical of Ecclesiastes, it's very earthy, it's, it's daily, it's, it's very pragmatic, and he's going to say, there are three ways that if you pay attention to wealth in your life, you're going to see that it actually does not bring you life. And here's the first one. We can call it champagne problems, having wealth. The first Futility points to is that actually having wealth is futile. Look at verses 10 to 12. You can we print it in your bulletin, or you can pull it up on your phone or in your Bible. Verses 10 to 12 of chapter 5. He says, Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless or futile. As goods increase, so do those who consume them, consume them, and what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether they eat little or much, but as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. I mentioned Rockefeller and that quip, how much money is enough, just a bit more. That question continues. In 2019, Charles Schwab did a survey of how much Americans thought they needed to be considered comfortable. And the answers varied a fair amount by region of the country and also by generation. It varied a little bit, but they, it started somewhere in the about $1.1 million range to be comfortable. But what this doesn't measure is the far more important thing, which is actual life satisfaction. And Ecclesiastes points out what we know is true, that if we love money and wealth, even if you had $1.1 million, it would never be enough and you would never be satisfied. Why? Why is that? Because as money increases, so do the problems. You need more accountants, you need more legal issues, there are more taxes, there are more complications with relationships, more decisions to make, more things to take care of, more stuff to insure, more stuff to be worried about, carpets get stained, boat engines break down, neighbors ruin your nice neighborhood, Teslas get dense. More does not bring peace. I like how one commentator said it, fine clothes can be nothing but nice wrapping paper for ulcers. And I would add a mansion can just give you more and bigger rooms to fight in and be lonely in. And I think verse 12 is particularly striking. The sleep of a laborer is sweet, 
whether they eat little or much, but as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. You see, it turns out that wealth, as much as we long for it, isn't actually what enables us to sleep well at night or give us a sense of meaning. Satisfaction in life, what, one makes, what makes one sleep sweetly and not anxiously, those don't come from wealth, it turns out. They come from labor and diligence. Money with idleness is actually the worst kind of meaninglessness. If you're lazy and poor, at least you can kind of dream that money might make you happy. But if you're rich, and idle, you know how meaningless life is. The way God has wisely made the world, satisfaction comes from the work itself, not the prosperity that is the result of work. This is part of the reason why many hardworking, financially faithful people really struggle in retirement. They have the savings account and the stock portfolio and the nice house that they worked decades for, and that's good. That's good. That's deserved. That, that was the hope that drove them. But it turns out that life is really found not just in the accumulating of all these things, but actually in meaningful work. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying retirement is bad, and I look forward to a time when my schedule is not so absolutely overpacked, and I've got six kids, so I'm hoping I'm going to have a lot of grandkids, and I'm looking forward to that. But there is a paradox and an irony in that the work itself is what satisfies more than the financial benefits of work. As the old adage says, I think it's another example of this, it's not the kill, it's the thrill of the chase. So our first problem that Ecclesiastes 5 points out to us is that there is a futility of wealth in that having it doesn't actually satisfy. And the second one is this. The second sense of futility we get regarding wealth, wealth is losing it. We could call this a cruel summer. A few weeks ago, two Kentucky women, one at a Speedway down in Mount Washington, one at a Walmart out in Crestwood, they both bought lucky lottery tickets, and on scratch-off tickets, one of them won $100,000, and another one won $225,000. Now, a little less after, quite a bit less after taxes, but good for them. And one of the winners, Jeanette Corkum, was interviewed, and this is what she had to say. I'm so happy, nothing bothers me right now, she told the lottery officials. It's a lie, money doesn't make you happy. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I hope she's right. I, I hope she's right in her case. She got a check for $71,000, which is not a bad bonus for a scratch-off, but not exactly a life-changer. I'm glad she feels happy, but the statistics on lottery winners tell a very different story. Did you know that a large percentage of lottery winners, we're talking even millions and hundreds of millions, a very large percentage of them end up bankrupt within three to five years. Lottery winners are actually more likely in America to go bankrupt than the average American. And scientific studies that have been done, psychological studies that have been done on their happiness and their health, finds that they are not better off even despite having tons of money. Similarly, maybe some of you about 10 years ago saw the ESPN documentary called Broke that showed this shocking statistic with real-life people that within two years of retirement, 78% of NFL players have gone bankrupt. 78%. And 
And within five years, 60% of NBA players are broke. Now, what makes these stories so tragic is that what could have been a beautiful summer of life with this financial windfall became a cruel loss. Because you see, the loss of money was actually worse than never having had it. Not only the dissatisfaction, but almost always that money destroys relationships and gives you a deep sense of futility. And this is, this is the second example. Look at verses 13 and 14. This is what the teacher is saying. I have seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners, or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when they have children, there's nothing left for them to inherit. You and I don't have to be lottery winners or NFL stars to experience the loss of income and money and wealth, whether it's a, maybe a sudden downturn in the economy or one's company moving away or a global pandemic that destroys the sector of business or just a foolish decision we might make to lose everything. Many people at some point in their lives go from having everything set to financially losing it and the sense is always futility. So the teacher points out that there's a futility in having wealth, there's a futility in losing wealth, and then finally there's a futility in leaving wealth. Look at verses 15 to 17. Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb. And as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. This too is a grievous evil. As everyone comes, so they depart. And what do they gain? Since they toil for the wind, all their days they eat in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. Now, I'm not here to give you professional financial investment advice. I'm not qualified to do that. There's probably some law against it. But do you know what one of the fastest growing industries is right now? Self-storage units. <laughs> All you have to do is drive around and you will see self-storage units growing up everywhere. And I was looking up some of these stats. I got on my Robinhood account and said, maybe I should buy some self-storage stock. But it already got up 81% this year. So now's not the, I can't say that. That's not the time to buy, right? But in 2019, the self-storage market was valued at about $87 billion. By 2025, it's estimated to be valued at $115 billion. That's 135% growth in five years. Now, I'm not dissing this, and I understand for a lot of legitimate business and personal reasons, storage units can be very beneficial. But I also can't help but note that it is remarkable in a society that we have so much stuff that we have to have businesses to pay other people to hold on to our stuff that we don't have room for in our homes and our businesses. And the tragic reality is that humans spend so much time amassing and storing all of our stuff that will do us absolutely no good when we die. We will leave it completely behind. We arrived in the world with nothing, and we will go out of the world in the same way. Now it is beautiful when a family through wisdom passes on wealth and helps the next generation, that's great. But what's sad and tragic is how much of our life energy and anxiety we spend on collecting and gathering and protecting our stuff and wealth when 
at the end, when every one of us faces death, it actually doesn't help us at all. You've probably heard the saying, there are no U-holes behind hearses. And that's what the teacher is reminding us of here. And even more, not only does wealth not help us, it actually distorts us while we live. I'm really struck by Psalm 49. I want to read for you several verses here from Psalm 49. The psalmist says, For all can see that the wise die, and that the foolish and senseless also perish, leaving their wealth to others. Their tombs will remain their houses forever. Let that sink in. They have a nice house. You know what our final house is? A tomb. Their dwellings for endless generations, though they had named lands after them. People, despite their wealth, do not endure. They are like the beasts that perish. This is the fate of those who trust in themselves and of their followers who approve their sayings. They're like sheep and they're destined to die. Death will be their shepherd, but the upright will prevail over them in the morning. Their forms will decay in the grave far from their princely mansions. But God will redeem me from the realm of the dead. He will surely take me to himself. Do not be overawed with when others grow rich, when the splendor of their houses increases, for they will take nothing with them when they die. Their splendor will not descend with them. Though while they live, they count themselves blessed and people praise you when you prosper, they will join those who have gone before them who will never again see the light of life. People who have wealth but lack understanding are like the beasts that perish. Happy Sunday. <laughs> Death is the ultimate sign that even great wealth cannot sustain anyone. And as the psalmist points out, it actually distorts us and makes us less human. It makes us like beasts. So once again, the teacher of Ecclesiastes is giving us this brutally honest, in-your-face, raw wisdom. Wealth and money and all that they promise are futile. They create actually a sense of meaningless in us when we have it, when we lose it, and when we leave it. So what do we do? The teacher doesn't leave us there. Look at verses 18 to 20. He says then, in light of all that, this is what I have observed to be good, that it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given them, for this is their lot. Moreover, whenever God, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. In light of the honest look at the futility of wealth, how do we live? Well, the solution, God's solution, is learning the gift of contentment. Now if you pay attention to how this text works, this actually comes back to the first and biggest problem of money, that it doesn't really satisfy. And now, when we come to the bottom of the text, we see that this is the issue. No matter how much we have, it is never enough. And even again, in a rare moment, where we might say that we have enough money, 
Wealth and all that it buys never satisfies our deepest needs, our longings for relationships and connection with others and love and meaningfulness. And a lot of that, Ecclesiastes is asking, where is God in all of this? And the answer is that we can find God and meaningfulness when we receive what we've been given as a gift. We work faithfully and diligently as whatever's set before us, and we enjoy the fruits of our labors, but that's it. We cannot trust in wealth or money to do more than just provide a sense of contentment today. To learn to live with whatever we have, to be present in this moment as a gift from God. Any trust or hope that we put beyond that, beyond just contentment in today, any hope or trust we put beyond that in money and wealth, the Bible says we are living the life of a fool. I like how... Pastor Zach Eswine says it, the appetite for what money can buy is never satisfied. And thus the only way to curb this reckless desire is to be content with what God provides. You see, friends, it turns out that the real power in life is not money and wealth. Everything in us says that if you have money and wealth, you'll have power. But the real power in life is actually to learn to be content with whatever you do have. Our daily bread, as Jesus will call it. That's where the power of life is found. And once again, we see that the Bible is so remarkably wise and sophisticated in its view towards the world and how we relate to him. I like how Joe Rigney describes this. He says, Christianity is a paradoxical religion in that it is both world-affirming and world-denying at the same time. Christians celebrate creation, which includes all the goods of the world, because it is made by God. And Christians also treat creation, in a sense, lightly, because it's not God. Let that sink in. Do you see what he's saying? The key to contentment with the things of the world comes from affirming that what we have is a gift from God. It's good. The things that we're given are good and not to be denied or rejected while we recognize them as gifts. We recognize that these things are good, but they are not God. So they will never really satisfy. And life, the teacher of Ecclesiastes is saying, is found in finding that sweet spot, that wise middle, that key to living life well and wisely. And that is receiving all that we have as a gift from God and trusting him enough to say it is enough. I can be content with what God has provided me for today. I love how the writer of the Proverbs near the end of his book says it this way. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who's the Lord? Anybody tempted with that? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. You and I must never forget the crucial phrase that Jesus himself uses when he's talking about all this topic. Remember this phrase he uses? He calls this the deceitfulness of riches. The deceitfulness of riches. Do you believe that phrase? Do you realize and believe that wealth 
actually has the power to deceive you? And I mean you, and I mean me. I don't mean somebody else, like, oh, I can't wait till somebody else hears this sermon. That's never a good sign, right? I'm talking about you. Do you realize that wealth has the power to deceive you? I know when I've read that phrase forever, I've thought, yeah, those people, those really wealthy people, they're deceived. But then you have to remember that the nature of deceit is that you don't realize you're deceived. <laughs> the deceitfulness of riches. The solution is to live this day, whether you have great wealth or not, as a gift from God, content with what you do have, not letting the longing for more, the, the perception or the belief that if you got more, you would be happy, not letting that deceive you and blind you. Friends, there is no life in living that way. So to bring this home today, I, I want to press into just one more level beyond, I think, what Ecclesiastes does to, to what the real issue is, and I want to offer you an invitation. So the issue and the invitation. What is the real issue with wealth and money? Despite you and I, if we're honest with ourselves, recognizing that it doesn't really satisfy, it's futile, why does it still have such, such a power over us? Why? Why does money and wealth control so much of us, even though we know it doesn't really satisfy? I think it's because it gives us the false promise that we are in control. Wealth and money promises to us that we are in control. Do you remember? great and famous story from the Gospels where this godly young Jewish man comes to Jesus and he says, how, what can I do to find real life? What can I do to enter into God's eternal kingdom? And this man was a good man. He was a godly man. In fact, God had blessed him. He was honored. He was pious by all accounts. He was wealthy and successful. And he's not condemned for any of that. He's clearly a blessed man. And this is all good. Do you remember what happens? When Jesus tells him that if he wants to enter into life, that he has to actually leave that behind and become a follower of Jesus, what happened? He couldn't do it. And then Jesus turns to his disciples and says something absolutely shocking. He says, it is actually difficult for the rich to enter into the kingdom of heaven. What? Difficult for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven? Why would that be? God is the one who made the world. He gives success. He loves flourishing. All the beauty and goodness of the world comes from God. Why in the world would Jesus say that the material signs of God's blessing and the goodness of the world actually make it difficult to enter the kingdom of heaven? Why in the world would he say that? It's because wealth promises us self-mastery. And self-mastery, control of our own fate, is the core thing that we must be willing to lay down to be a follower of Jesus. God is not opposed to money and wealth and all the good that can be done with it, including a nice house and vacations and good food. These are all gifts from God. They are not the problem. The problem 
is the way, the deceitful way in which money whispers to us, you're safe, you're in control, you've got this. It's whispering in our ears. It's a little recording going over and over. If you get this money, if you get this wealth, if you get this, you'll be okay. And it's a lie. And the, the teacher is telling us this, and he's grabbing us by the ears, and he's saying, wake up. Because whether you have money or you lose it or you leave it, there is no real life there. It is a false and foolish hope. Real life is found only when we reconnect with the true God of the universe who actually does control our lives, the, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And the teacher of Ecclesiastes and the ultimate teacher Jesus are saying to you and me today, wake up. Don't be a fool who puts their hope in what the world offers as if that's going to make you the master of your fate. It is not. Jesus is calling all of us to wake up from this slumber, from this deceit. And he's, it's like he's rushing into the burning down crack house of our money-blinded stupor. He's slapping us across the face so that our eyes come into focus again. He throws us on our back and he's running us out into the fresh air of the kingdom of God and saying, wake up, this deceitfulness is not going to bring you life. So I want to invite you today. As God's representative, God is inviting you today to the wisdom that will actually give you the flourishing life you long for. It is not going to be found in the futility of wealth and money and all that they promise. And maybe today it's for the first time or maybe for the 500th time, a, a reawakening, a recentering of our lives on God himself, remembering that whatever we have is a gift and it's to be enjoyed in the proper relationship to God. I mentioned this six weeks or so ago when we were back in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. You and I need to constantly relearn the difference between loving things and using things. We use the gifts God has given us while we only love God. But every time we get this backwards where we love the gifts and use God, we never find life. We never find contentment. And this text is reminding us again we love God as the giver of gifts that we learn to be content with whatever we have today. So today, friends, the Spirit is calling you and me back to living with godly wisdom under the sun as we seek Him. Let me pray. Thank you for listening to the Human Flourishing Podcast. To learn more or get in touch with me, visit my website, jonathanpennington.com.